Good morning, church. The Lord continue to be with you in this pandemic. I pray that you are keeping fit physically and spiritually. I hope you are also mentally strong in the Lord on the second week of stage three lockdown. We thank God for the ways our federal and state governments are doing their best to control the community transmission. There is a flattening of the curve and the death toll has not risen. So we want to thank God for that. And please continue to pray for our frontline health workers, that they will be protected as they treat patients with COVID-19. Please pray also for patients with other diseases, that they will receive adequate care during this time when medical resources are stretched. Now for a quiz. What do you think is the day that changed the world? Historian will give you different answers. Some historians consider the day June 28, 1914. That was the day when the assassination of an Austrian Archduke triggered off World War I, which was a very pointless and stupid war. Modern historians may consider 9-11, the day the Twin Towers in New York collapsed, as the defining moment of the 21st century. Now, if you are thinking what I'm thinking, March 11, 2020 is a strong candidate. That was the day the World Health Organization declared the novel coronavirus outbreak a pandemic. When the crisis is over, the world will never be the same again. However, from a biblical perspective, the day that changed the world forever was when a temple curtain in Jerusalem was torn in two. It coincided with the time when Jesus died on the cross on a Friday. And Jesus' death changed world history because on that day, access to the one true Creator God was open to all people. That day is called Good Friday in the Christian calendar, which we are commemorating this morning. You will remember that five days earlier, on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosannas. The pilgrim crowds had acclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. But the religious authorities of Jerusalem didn't like that. They were offended that a Galilean could be the Messiah, for they believed that the Messiah must come from Jerusalem, not Nazareth in Galilee. The religious authorities were even more offended when Jesus claimed to be God. In their eyes, Jesus had committed a serious blasphemy. For that, he must die. The authorities therefore set him up and got the Roman justice system to crucify him at a place called Golgotha, just outside Jerusalem. The Gospel writer Mark will tell us more about what happened at Golgotha. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to the Gospel according to Mark, to chapter 15. Let me read from verse 25 through to verse 39. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, 
but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from where from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabatani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. If you were there at Golgotha that morning, you would sense a very heavy and somber atmosphere. And you would notice a few things. You would see Jesus crucified between two rebels. A notice on Jesus' cross reads, the king of the Jews. The Romans have put up this notice to mock the Jews for killing their own king. But the Jews reject Jesus as their Messiah because they expect the Messiah to save them from the rule of Rome. But Jesus has come to save his people from the rule of sin in their hearts. The Jews are therefore eager to dispose of Jesus. A group of passers-by begin to tease Jesus. They remember Jesus saying, Destroy this temple and I will build it in three days. They look at Jesus in his dying moment and throw Jesus' words back in his face. They say mockingly, Show that you can do what you claim to do. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the priests and the religious teachers mock Jesus. They say to him, Come down from the cross and save yourself. Then we will believe that you are indeed the Messiah. But the passerbys and the priests have spoken with no understanding. Of course, Jesus could ask God the Father to save him, and it would be done. But if Jesus were to come down from the cross, he would not be able to save humanity from their sins. You see, it is to save us from our sins that Jesus had resolutely entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He would not be deterred from his mission now. He will remain on the cross in order to fulfill his prophecy about the temple. The temple in the Old Testament is the meeting place between God and mankind. The destruction of the temple and the raising of it in three days is Jesus' way of referring to his own death on the cross, followed by his resurrection. And when Jesus rises from the dead on Easter Sunday, he will become the new temple to replace the old. He himself will then become the meeting place between God and mankind. And so Jesus chooses to die and rise again in order to be the new temple.
At noon, the land is enveloped in an unnatural darkness that lasts until three in the afternoon. By this time, Jesus is near death. He cries out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, some bystanders misunderstand Jesus' cry, and one of them offers Jesus a drink of wine vinegar to ease his suffering. Now, today, some people continue to misunderstand Jesus' cry. They are shocked that Jesus could utter those words if he knew that he was going to die. But we need not understand Jesus' cry. The Apostle Peter tells us in his first letter, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So Jesus' cry is from the suffering for our sins. As the sinless one, he is bearing the sins of the whole world, your sins and mine, in his body on the cross. God's wrath is on him, symbolized by the unnatural darkness. And as Jesus absorbs the punishment for our sins, he experiences the separation of God the Father, from whom he has never been ever separated. So he cries out to God, not as a complaint, but as an acknowledgement of doing the Father's will, which is to defeat sin and to defeat death in order to reconcile sinful humanity to a holy God. As Jesus breathes his last, our debt is finally paid. Our sins are forgiven. Our guilt is removed. Jesus succeeds in removing the sin barrier that has separated mankind from God. Jesus now brings us to God. And we know this has happened because Mark tells us in verse 38 that at the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain of the temple was completely torn in two from top to bottom. Now the curtain of the temple separates the most holy place, which symbolizes God's presence, from all the worshippers. A completely torn curtain therefore signifies two things. One, all barrier between man and God has been removed. Two, God is no longer behind the curtain of the temple. The temple system is now obsolete. Now this is astounding. But what does it mean for us? Well, it means that the way mankind worships God has changed. Jesus' death has changed history by bringing about three changes to the way we relate to God. Firstly, God is no longer worshipped in the temple, but in the person of Jesus Christ. Religion tells us to go to a place or a physical building where God is to be worshipped. But with the torn curtain, God is no longer found in a place, but in the soon-to-be-resurrected person, the person of Jesus the Messiah. The resurrected Jesus is the go-to person if we want to worship God. To know Jesus is to know God. To worship Jesus is to worship God. And to worship God, we don't have to be at a specific place. 
God can be worshipped anywhere because Jesus has promised to be with us wherever we are, even when two or three Christians come together. And so during this time of lockdown, we can do church in our home. And with the help of the internet, we can recreate a virtual togetherness to enrich our worship experience. So I hope you will keep joining our online service until the lockdown is lifted, which we pray will not be too far away. Now the second change is this. The worship of God is now universalized. This means anyone, regardless of color or class, can worship God in Jesus. In Roman times, you embrace the religion of your ethnicity and you worship the gods of your tribe. Gentiles could never go into the temple in Jerusalem. But Christ's death changed all that. The torn curtain tells us that all barriers to the one true and living God have been removed. Jews and Gentiles can now worship the Creator God together. And that's why the Apostle Paul tells us, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, neither male, slave or free. The one true God is accessible to everyone regardless of race, gender, class, or age. So Christianity is therefore inclusive. It is non-discriminatory. Anyone can come to faith when they are ready to believe in Jesus. This brings us to the third change. Salvation is by faith in Jesus, not by works. Now, in Jesus' time, worship of God was more of a public performance of religious rituals and good works. People performed these deeds in the hope of earning righteousness to outweigh their sins and so save themselves from God's judgment. But we cannot save ourselves because our sins cannot be cancelled out with good works. A person cannot be acquitted of murder just because he has donated money to charity. Justice doesn't work like that. For justice to be met, sin must be punished before there can be forgiveness. So on the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sins. We can now be forgiven. To receive the forgiveness of sins, Jesus tells us to believe in him. Salvation is therefore by faith in Jesus, not by performing religious rituals or good works. We cannot save ourselves, but Jesus has saved us. And to receive this salvation, we need to put our personal trust in Jesus. And that was what the Roman centurion did. The centurion was in charge of executing Jesus. He knew Jesus' claims about himself. But when he heard Jesus cry and saw how Jesus died, he realized that Jesus was no criminal. He was no ordinary man. And so he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Now this morning, the question for you and me is this. 
Who are we like in our response to Jesus' death? The passers-by, the priests, or the Roman centurion? If you are offended by the claims of Jesus and you, you choose to re reject him, you will respond like the priest and the passers-by. You will choose to bear the punishment of your sins, which is the eternal separation from God who is the source of everything good. However, if you are burdened by your sins, if you are sorrowful about your brokenness, and you have tried saving yourselves but failed, then you must respond like the centurion. Come to Jesus. Believe that He is the Messiah, the Son of God. He will give you rest to your weary soul. He will heal you of your brokenness. Jesus has paid the penalty of your sins. He will forgive you and give you the gift of eternal life. That is why today is called Good Friday. We have received an undeserved gift of eternal life. And God has turned the death of Jesus for the good of mankind. God has saved us even though we don't deserve it. And because it is by grace that we have been saved, we will be ever grateful. And we will show our gratitude by doing good to our neighbors and by doing good in the community. In history, Christians have always done good to contribute to the flourishing of society. So let us keep up this tradition. In this time of crisis, let us be ready to help in practical and sacrificial ways so that God and Jesus will be glorified. Let us pray. Almighty God, in your great wisdom, you made Jesus your Son, who had no sin to be seen for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. In your great love, you saved us, not by works, but by faith in Jesus, so that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. We pray that during this pandemic, many will call on the name of Jesus and be saved. We pray for your mercy to grant governments and health authorities the strategies to shorten the duration of the pandemic. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us receive the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May the Lord bless you this Good Friday. See you on Easter Sunday. Take care.